Thank you for tuning into the Apostolic Pentecostal Church podcast. You are currently listening to one of our iGrow series lessons. If you're in the Bloomington, Illinois area and want to sit in person, feel free to join us Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. for Bible study and Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. for worship in the Word. Can't make it in person? No big deal. Find us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram and search Apostolic Pentecostal Church. Either way, we'd love to fellowship and worship with you. We hope to see you. Hello. I'm John the Baptist. For snacks, I have brought crickets and honey. Very edible, very yummy, very good protein. Amen. John the Baptist, no greater prophet. I wonder if will someone read a scripture for me? 2,500 years old, so my eyes are not very good. I got the fox eyes on number 24. All right, we got the doctor back there. Matthew 11 and 11. Then I'm going to make you backtrack. Matthew 11, 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Right. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Correct. Brother Phil. <laughs> Go ahead, please. Verse 2. Yes. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto them, Art thou he that mm. should come, or do we look for another? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Go, and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. Yes. Start keep going. Is that verse 14? Oh, goodness. The blind receive their sights, and the lame walk. Yes. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended at me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see, a reed shaken with the wind? But what went ye out for to see, a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in the king's house. But what went ye out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding... He that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. Amen. In the book of Malachi was the closing voice of the Old Testament. Malachi is the last book of the prophets as the last void of the Old Testament. Malachi offered hope and sufficient to carry Israel into the coming era of grace. To the voice of John the Baptist announcing the arrival of Jesus as the Lamb of God. 
The 400 years of silence that followed Malachi's prophecies were typically of God's pattern of speaking in the Old Testament. Long periods of time passed between the Lord speaking in his distinctive, fresh voice, following creation and communion with the Lord had with Adam in the garden. Roughly a thousand years passed before Noah, another thousand years until Abraham, and approximately 500 years passed from Abraham to Moses to Samuel, David, and then the prophet Aaron. Malachi prophesied last, more than 500 years before John's introduction of Jesus. Regardless of the origin of frequency of the word, it is sufficient to sustain through time. It is forever settled, forever fresh, forever true, dependable, and applicable to our lives. What has been spoken and written remains as powerful today as it was when it first appeared. That is the inspiration of the scriptures, the confidence of our continuing hope. Malachi's words lived on to sustain Israel until John appeared. The burden in Malachi. Malachi referred to his prophecy as a burden in Malachi 1.1. His was the last to be the last voice, the anchor of all who preceded him and all who hoped to follow. The history of Israel's relationship to God had facilitated continually between hot and cold. We are not to be lukewarm, amen? amen. Faithful and aloof. Malachi's message was to not be one of encouragement as were those of Haggai and Zechariah some 80 years earlier. Rather, it was straightforward call to repentance and preparation for the forthcoming judgment. Such preaching and prophecy is ineffective unless it is passionately presented from a burdened heart. The only way to preach about judgment and hell's fire is the rears of concern laced with hope and opportunity to change. Malachi expressed his words with a burdened heart. Malachi's message was one of the stern rebuke from the Lord for both the people and the priests. Israel had dishonored God, polluted his altar, turned spiritual things into personal profit, and profaned the name of the Lord to the point that the Lord had no pleasure in the people and refused to accept their sacrifices. I don't ever want to get to a point where he refuses my sacrifice. It was a strong rebuke and carried with a dreadful chastisement from the Lord in Malachi 1 and 4. In Malachi 2, even stronger language was used concerning the priest if they refused to hear the commandment concerning the covenant of peace of truth, peace and truth God made with Levi. Their blessings were to be cursed, their children lost, their lives disgraced, and their sacrifices despised if they refused Malachi's message. Because the priests were God's messengers responsible to the people, they received an even stronger rebuke. Those chosen of God as spiritual leaders, be the priests of the law or preachers of the gospel, must give an answer to God for their care of the flock. The burden of the messenger is subject to the seriousness of the sin and the shortness of time to repent. Malachi painted a painful picture of, of Israel in chapter 3 from their fathers. It was one of repeated failure to keep the ordinance of the Lord. He contrasted it with the faithfulness of the Lord who changes not, and therefore Jacob was not destroyed. <clears throat> God's commitment to Israel was unconditional. Aren't you thankful for that? Yes. 
His love for us is unconditional. Love commits. With the condemnation of their sin came a clear call for repentance. Malachi 3.7 says, Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. Love calls to repentance. The Lord's desire is not to curse, but to save, to restore, and to bless. His mercy endures forever. New hope always comes with repentance. Israel seemed to be so far removed from God's righteousness and commandments that one might question, is there any hope? Have you ever asked that question to yourself? But God's love has restorative power like no other. With God, all things are possible. Through repentance, Israel's ugly, dark description of her shameful acts was changed to become the delight of the Lord in his collection of jewels. The Lord promised healing, prosperity, and deliverance to those who feared his name. What a change when the sun of righteousness begins to shine in our lives. Malachi declared a second prophetic blessing. With the coming of the messenger of the Lord and the spirit of the prophet Elijah, this messenger was to be John the Baptist. The last of the Old Testament, type prophets, and the forerunner of Jesus. John was to come in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. There is no restoration equal to that of eternal family relationships, for family separations are most painful of all separations. The ministry of John was to bring hope to the deepest and most critical schisms of the house of Israel. The individual, family, and the ultimately to the collective body of Christ. Our lives can change from lumps of coal and ashes of ruin to jewels of sparkling clarity in the presence of God when we respond to the word of the Lord in repentance. So now to talk about my life. I had to give you a little foundation. John, that's me, was the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth a faithful priest, and his wife, who were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, Luke 1 and 6. John's parents were both advanced in age. It's a nice way of saying they were old. <laughs> Amen, but they didn't hear me say that. Elizabeth suffered the reproach of barrenness. Zacharias, an elderly priest, had light duty burning incense in the temple. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Zacharias as he offered incense, the angel said, Thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. The prayers of the righteous never die. They result in joy and gladness for the one who prayed as well as others. Faithfulness is the strength of righteous service and is observed by the Lord and by those being served. John's parents prepared him for the unusual service unto the Lord with humility and strength. Some may feel advanced age prevents them from normal service to the Lord. But the four basic actions of the early church, teaching, apostolic doctrine, fellowshipping, breaking bread, and praying are not subject to age. Aren't we thankful for that? Acts 2.42. It is plausible that prayer is the greatest these Christian action is of the greatest of these Christian actions. Certainly the Lord observes the prayers of the elders and they become an inspiration 
to the entire body of Christ. Prayers are not limited by the physical strength of one praying or destroyed by the physical rebuffs of closed doors, difficulties, or distance. God heard Daniel's prayer the first day he prayed. Though the answer was delayed, he heard Simeon's prayer every day until it was answered. God heard the prayers of visionary prophets to whom he gave insight to the kingdom of the world in ages to come. But he also hears the prayers of ordinary people who want to see the Lord's presence manifested. Prayer works even if we still work at praying. James 5.16 says, Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Mark 11, 23 and 24, For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those which have shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore I say unto you what things soever ye desire when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. The hand of the Lord was upon John from his mother's womb. His life from the beginning to the end was filled with great purpose. I believe that tonight that your life is filled with great purpose as well. The spirit and the power of Elijah was to rest upon him for the purpose of turning the hearts of the fathers to their children, the disobedient to wisdom, and to make people ready for the Lord. Purpose is filled with knowledge, ability, and commitment. Knowledge gives direction. Ability gives confidence. And commitment provides strength to accomplish the task regardless of the difficulty or opposition. Purpose is fulfilled in preparation and perspiration and the presentation. Okay? Death and perspiration under here. John had a cause and a calling and a commitment to Christ, which made him a man of great influence with great humility. But now let's talk about John's ministry. John the Baptist was the messenger of the Lord, whom Malachi prophesied would come to prepare the way of the Lord. In Malachi 3 and 1. In his manner and ministry, he was an Old Testament type prophet in a New Testament age. He, his ministry was one of refining fire from the rekindled coals of Old Testament altars in Israel's past to the sudden glorious appearance of the Lord in the New Kingdom era. He served as the capstone and personification of all the prophets of Israel before him. His prophetic words concerning Christ's kingdom unfolded within days and weeks of being spoken. His message was profound. John 21, 29, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Imagine being that person hearing that for the very first time. John's message was threefold. Repentance, water baptism, the Holy Ghost baptism. That was it. Those were his three sermons. Sounds pretty easy, doesn't it, doctor? <laughs> he didn't have 80 sermons. <clears throat> repentance. John's preaching of heartfelt repentance brought admiration and respect from the people to the point that they wondered if he might be the Christ. Imagine preaching a message, Brother Neil, that you preach it with such conviction and such heartfelt repentance that people think that you're the Christ. That's how he preached. Isn't that amazing? Mark 1 and 5, his followers confessed their sins in order to make their paths straight. 
Luke 3 and 5, they were expected to make their wrongs right, thus smoothing out the rough ways. Luke 3 and 8, they were expected to bring forth fruit worthy of repentance and not rest in the false hope that they were righteous because they were Abraham's descendants. Luke 3, 8 through 14, and I'll, and I'll make it short, they were expected to become caring, honest, and gentle, neither doing violence to any nor false accusing any, and they were to be content with their wages. Content with their wages. I don't make enough money today. <laughs> but I'm convicted when I read that. I am supposed to be content. Thank you, Jesus. Luke 13, verses 3 and 5. I'll shorten it again. The axe was laid at the root of the tree, and repentance was the only way to escape judgment to come. Except ye repent. You shall all likewise perish. Sounds like a promise. Sounds like a directive. This is what's going to happen. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. Except ye repent. Ye shall all likewise perish. His second sermon, water baptism, John preached water baptism for the remission of sins. Mark 1 and 4. There must be true repentance for baptism to be effective. John's converts confessed their sins before he baptized them. Mark 1 and 5. John baptized by immersion. Praise the Lord. Okay? There was no sprinkling. There was no in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. As Jesus did in the apostles. That's in John and Acts, John 3 and Acts 8. The Greek word for baptism is baptizo, baptizo means to immerse. John knew this. And when John baptized Jesus in the Jordan River, Jesus came up out of the water, indicating he was immersed. Mark 1 and 10. In his third and final sermon, Holy Ghost Baptism. John said he baptized water, but the Lord whose shoes he was not worthy to loose. Think about that for a second. When you say, I'm not even worthy to walk a mile in that man's shoes, John said, I'm not even worthy to even untie him. Wow. He would baptize them with the Holy Ghost and fire. Mark 1 and 8, Luke and 3, 16. John's message was, in essence, the same as the message Peter preached on the day of Pentecost with the exception of the identification of the name of Jesus in water baptism and the infilling of the Holy Ghost, which was not poured out until after John's death and Jesus' ascension. Two decades after Pentecost, Paul met some of John's disciples at Ephesus. After he discovered they had not received the Holy Ghost, he instructed them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. When he laid his hands on them, they received the Holy Ghost. Paul confirmed that intent of the original message of John with the full experience of salvation received at Pentecost. John's ministry was focused on identifying the Lord, who was to suddenly appear in his temple and prepare the hearts of the people for his coming. Therefore, he lived righteously and preached repentance and remission of sins in order to behold the Lamb of God. His message continued to resonate within the ministry of Jesus and the apostles in the establishment of the New Testament church. Jesus is the Savior, the sacrificial lamb, who alone has the power to cleanse the sins of mankind and transform believers into the likeness of his own nature. From the angelic announcement preceding his birth, 
to his closing prison cell, John's mission, ministry, and message were about Jesus Christ. John proclaimed, he must increase, but I must decrease. John 3 and 30. The strength and the joy of John's ministry was the exaltation of Jesus as a friend of the bridegroom. When Jesus was lifted up at Calvary, it was for the purpose of drawing all men unto him. The practice John instituted in lifting up the Lord through preaching and sincere rejoicing has remained the primary principle of evangelism of this day. John's ministry was short, lasting approximately six months. Can you believe that? Six months. His ministry was never about his heritage as a priest's son of an angelic proclamation, his unusual dress, his dietary habits, or even his fiery preaching, but always about Jesus. He built no kingdom around himself, but from, every, but from the very beginning he pointed his converse to follow the Lord who was to come. John knew his role and purpose in life, which qualified him as the forerunner of the Lord and made him great. He knew he sent him to baptize, and for what purpose? He knew the Lord would be revealed to him in time. Therefore, when the Spirit descended as a dove from heaven upon Jesus at baptism, can you imagine? Baptizing the Messiah and a dove descending upon him. John knew that was Jesus, the Lamb of God, and not just his cousin. I think it would be really cool just to be his cousin, but hey. <laughs> he thereafter directed his converse to Jesus. In John 1, 19-42, Christian ministry remains the same as John's pattern. We are to preach Jesus and to keep his commandments. We are to win converts to the Lord. None greater among men. John's childhood and early manhood, like those of Jesus, were obscure. Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph may have all passed away before either John's or Jesus' ministries were active. But without doubt, parental guidance and holy anointing accompanied them and equipped them for their roles in life. Train up a child. That was written way before John and Jesus were born. This was indoctrinated in their culture to train up a child. And we must be still training up our children today in the 21st century. <clears throat> their love for God, his house, his word, perpetrated their greatness. Successful ministries always have many influences that contribute to desire, confidence, ability, determination, knowledge, and gracefulness. Gracefulness. I can't talk with this wig on. John's unusual ways in wilderness life may have been dictated by his circumstances and necessity rather than choice. But his calling was from God. His image and influence cast a long shadow back across thousands of years of prophetic history. But what, but what stood before him? Jesus and the kingdom were a brilliant light to the world the light of John came to introduce. John's imprisonment. 
John's imprisonment brought a conclusion to his public ministry. His ministry rose in popularity and effectiveness to unprecedented heights, but was destined to diminish. I can't imagine my ministry diminishing because I'm in jail. You do jail ministry. <laughs> Let me know how that works. His prophetic ministry as a grain of wheat fallen into the ground was to blossom forth in the new and more fruitful ministry of Christ Jesus. John 12, verse 24 says, Very, very, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Two views emerged as the confirmation John sought of Jesus. Identity as the one to come. The first is that John was uncertain of Jesus, authenticity, authenticity, and needed personal confirmation. This supports his humanity, his possible confusion, or even doubt because of the sudden turn of events and imprisonment. You're doing all these great things. You're preaching such good messages. They think you're the Christ, and then you get put in prison. Guess he should have had more crickets than honey. I don't know. But it is plausible to think there was less or no anointing since there was no audience. The feeling of a renewed confirmation seems justified. The second view is that John was acting in keeping with his pattern of pointing his disciples to the Lord. Even in prison, his followers were loyal, believed in him, and would have done anything possible to liberate him. Perhaps John wanted to confirm in the minds of his followers who Jesus was so their allegiance would be transferred to him. John had received personal confirmation of Jesus' identity when the Spirit descended upon him at his baptism. But John sent his disciples to Jesus concerning the works Jesus was doing. The works were a confirmation of the word spoken by Isaiah concerning Jesus, anointing of the Spirit. Therefore, John sent his disciples to Jesus with questions. Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? The key word here is we. Jesus' response to John's disciple was to tell John of the wonderful works that were being performed. It was a confirmation of the prophetic word spoken by Isaiah, which Jesus quoted in, in, his, in opening his ministry. Jesus concluded his comments to John and his disciples with an unusual but powerful remark. It was a blessing, the blessing of no offense. Offenses are often focused around physical dynamics, but Jesus was ministering to all kinds of physical needs around him with miraculous healings and manifestations. John was in prison physically. While the prisoners of blindness, lameness, leprosy, deafness, and even death were being liberated, John remained incarcerated. Offenses are easily acquired when the focus is strictly on the physical. But John's life and ministry were centered on the spiritual, the introduction to a new and better way of life that was to lead to life eternal. So to shorten that, he was blessed. When John's disciple left Jesus after inquiring about his identity, Jesus took advantage of the moment to speak to the multitudes concerning John's ministry. 
The people loved John. From the king's court in Jerusalem to the banks of the Jordan, his ministry impacted multitudes. His ministry paved the way for Jesus. And the Lord wanted the people to know how truly great John the Baptist was as a person committed to a cause. Jesus asked in Matthew 11, 7 through 9, and I'll shorten it, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? A man clothed in soft raiment? A prophet? Note here that the ascending order of importance in Jewish life, the prophet being greatest, to the highest order, Jesus remarked concerning John in Matthew 11 and 9, Yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. Jesus affirmed John was that the Okay, Jesus affirmed John was what the people believed him to be, a prophet. But Jesus said he was much more, for he was the subject of prophecy. He was the messenger sent to prepare the way for Jesus, which he did with his preaching. John was a man sent from God, John 1.33. He was set apart as the son of a priest, the proclamation of Gabriel concerning his birth and life. The relationship with Jesus, family, the proximity to Jerusalem and the temple, and the stability of all Judea, all contributed to his upbringing, positioning him to be a person of significance. But even more, he was a, the person of Malachi's prophecy, the heir to the spirit of Elijah, the heir to the right of scriptural proclamation by the priesthood and chosen to be the forerunner of Christ to bear witness of the light. He was the forerunner. It's a very important task, very important ministry. John knew he was chosen and sent of God, the highest of all authority. Herein was his confidence, strength, and greatness. Jesus declared John to be the greatest person ever to be born of women. His greatness was in his purpose and calling. Service to royalty has always been deemed a privilege, not a sacrifice. John was no ordinary servant, and Jesus was no ordinary royalty. Neither was either other sacrifices ordinary. John was the greatest man ever born of a woman because of his contribution to the greatest cause ever to face humanity, the cause of salvation. He paved the way for the Lord to make the gift of life eternal possible for whosoever would come and drink of the waters of life freely. John 3.16 and Revelation 22 and 17. Jesus then added another thought of equal grandeur. A greater than John was possible. How could anyone be greater than John? What could one possibly do to surpass John's role as the forerunner of Christ? The answer is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. One who follows Jesus is greater because he is a part of the kingdom of God. John can only say the kingdom was coming and point to the Jesus as king to come. But now the kingdom is here. And those who love the Lord and follow after him have the privilege to be a part of his kingdom as sons of God, not just servants. To follow Jesus is to believe in him and to be filled with his spirit. With the infilling of the spirit comes power to become witnesses of the grandeur of Christ, to share his nature to join his, his cause, this privilege is far greater than John's experience. John never got to experience the upper room. 
for it allows one to participate in full salvation experience. John was privileged to baptize unto repentance and point his followers to Jesus. But now individuals can repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus, receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, and actively share their experience with others. John pointed to the physical Christ destined to die, but, but believers today experience a living Christ who reigns forever. Therefore, he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist because of the infilling of the Spirit. The writer of Hebrews declared it to be so great salvation. Hebrews 2 and 3. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14 and 6. Colossians 1, 27. No other experience can compare to Christ in you, the hope of glory. And there is no joy like sharing our experience with others. So, as we close and internalizing the message, and I tried to go as slow as I could. You were excited. I was very excited. But I'm ready to get out of this, this beard. <laughs> so internalizing the message, the law and the prophets were unto, until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. John the Baptist was the bridge between the Old Testament and the New, between law and grace. When there are great transitions in God's plan, he always has a person to make the transition. Consider Noah, Abraham, Samuel, John the Baptist, and Paul as men who stood on the mountain peaks of time, viewing that which was behind and that which lay before them. Paul said it well in Philippians 3, 13-15. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in, if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. The believer's experience is dominated by two great transitions. First is that of salvation. When a person makes a transition from sin to salvation, everything changes with that person. The old habits of life become subject to the new ways as the believer takes on the divine nature of Christ. We become more and more like our Lord in the way we think, the way we act, and the way we judge all things in life. For a Christian's thoughts, chapter 5, actions, this is talking about talking about Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5 and through 7. So for Christian's thoughts, chapter 5, actions, chapter 6 and judgments, and chapter 7. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. See, second is the transition from the earthly sphere to the heavenly. This comes either by death or by the rapture of the church. This ultimately transition is also made by the power of the Spirit. Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwells in you. This is a permanent transition into a totally new world where we shall see the Lord as he is be like him, to be like him. The great joy at the final transition of life 
we will be to know we have helping, helped bring others to Christ to experience eternal life. This is the way to greatness. We can talk with Jesus in the fullness of the Christian experience and lead others to the experience of the Holy Ghost. The kingdom awaits for those who will be great.